There's a legend that comes to us from the first century BC regarding the famed mathematician Archimedes, who lived in the city of Syracuse, Sicily, in the third century BC. Uh, Archimedes, of course, is one of the most well known, most respected mathematicians who ever lived. Well, according to this legend, the king of Syracuse, a man by the name of Hiero, came to Archimedes with a problem. He had hired a local goldsmith to make a votive crown for him, a golden wreath, uh, one that was to be made for the gods. As part of the contract that he gave the goldsmith, uh, he provided the gold needed to make the crown. But when he received the crown back, although on the outside it looked fine, something still seemed kind of off about it. So he soon suspected that the goldsmith had cheated him, that this goldsmith had perhaps kept a portion of the gold for himself and replaced it with silver. But of course, he didn't know how to prove any of this. And so he turned to Archimedes and he asked him if he could discover a way to test the quality of the crown. And Archimedes accepted the challenge. The legend says that the answer then came to Archimedes one day as he was stepping into the bath. As Archimedes stepped down into the water, he observed that the water uh, was rising around the edge of the bath as he stepped into it, and instantly the solution to the problem clicked for him. Archimedes realized that the displacement of the water as he stepped into the bath had to equal the exact measure of his own volume. And since gold was twice as dense as silver, a crown of gold and silver alloy would have to be of a larger volume than one that was made of only gold. That is, if the crowns both weighed the same amount, uh, as was the amount of gold given to the goldsmith. So, you take a portion of gold, equal in weight to that given to the goldsmith, you submerge it in water, and then you submerge the crown. If the crown displaces more water than the quantity of gold, then you have your proof that the goldsmith is a cheat. All this clicked for Archimedes in that moment as he stepped into the bath. And as the legend goes, Archimedes immediately rushed out of the bath onto the streets of Syracuse, naked, shouting, Eureka, Eureka, which is Greek for, I found it, I found it. Now, whether this actually happened or whether it's simply legend is hard to say, but regardless, the phrase, Eureka, I've found it, has since been used by scientists and philosophers ever since to describe that moment when the light bulb suddenly goes on in one's mind and it illuminates the answer to an otherwise seemingly impossible problem. In fact, it's not just great thinkers that use this phrase. Uh, The motto of California is Eureka. And the reason is because this is what the original 49ers, not the San Francisco 49ers, but the men who first went out to California during the gold rush in search of gold, it's what they would often shout when they discovered a bit of gold gleaming in their pan. They'd shout, Eureka, I found it. Of course, I'm sure you can all think of your own Eureka moments. You've all felt the thrill of excitement that occurs when you come across some unexpected answer to a difficult problem that you've been working on. I've often had these moments as I'm working on a passage or as I'm trying to resolve the tension in one theological issue or another that I've been chewing on. In fact, I even have what I would call Eureka passages. That is, specific passages of Scripture which I might have read a hundred times, but which suddenly, unexpectedly resolve some difficult theological issue that I'm working on at the moment. Again, they're passages that I know, they're passages that I'm familiar with, that I think I understand, 
But when they're applied to some context I'd never applied them to before, and just like that, their meaning opens up in ways I never anticipated, and they immediately solve the problem I've been wrestling with. Today's passage is one of those passages for me. This is one of those Eureka passages. The moment, the, go- the moment when the gospel clicked for me was the moment when I understood the idea of repentance. I had understood the concept of sin and hell and atonement long before that moment when I was saved, years before that moment when I was saved. But the thing I had not understood was the connection between repentance and faith. So for years I operated under the illusion that I was a believer until suddenly, very unexpectedly, it clicked that faith in Christ meant repentance. And I had never done that. All of a sudden, the reality of sin and confession and dependence and faith became very much alive as I understood, wait a second, if I'm a Christian, then like I'm supposed to live this stuff out. I had never done that before. I was on the car ride home that night for the first time in my life that I was truly broken before God as I began to confess my sin, when I began to confess that I didn't obey, that I never obeyed, not once in my life that I obeyed, and that apart from God's help, I couldn't obey, that I needed Him to change my heart. That was one eureka moment for me, that moment that I actually turned to Christ in faith for the very first time in my life. Well, what this meant for me was that very early on in my Christian life, I was consumed with the desire to be conformed to Christ. Discipleship, I realized, meant conformity. So if I was going to call myself a disciple of Jesus, then I had to be made like Him. But what did that mean? And how did that happen? That was a different matter entirely. I didn't know the first thing about that. And so from that moment on, after I became a believer, I was at church every time the doors were open. When I was home, I would read books, and I would listen to sermons, and I kept looking for the answer What does it mean to be a Christian practically? What does it look like? And as I wrestled with that, I would listen to sermons that gave these lists of explaining what righteousness was and what a person had to do to be righteous. And I'd I'd bring my little black notebook with me to church and I'd dutifully scribble down all these lists, list after list, about what I had to do to be holy. And it wasn't long before I started to feel this growing sense of despair. You see, I would write these lists down, these lists describing what holiness is and how to be holy. And then I tell myself, you know, I got to make sure I don't forget this. I'm going to apply these principles in my life. But then before I ever had the opportunity to even look at these lists again, to review them, another sermon would roll around with more lists. And very, very quickly I realized I'm never going to keep up. This isn't going to work. I can't keep track of all these lists. I can still remember very specifically sitting at a men's breakfast at my church where the speaker had just given a message about the life of Jonathan Edwards talking about the the five or six or eight or however many principles that Edwards would employ in his life to redeem the time. And I can remember I can remember thinking to myself, that's it. This is too much. I can't do this. I can't remember all these lists. There's got to be something simpler than all this. Surely this isn't the way that God intended to make us holy through the rigorous memorization of an endless set of principles. 
Nine techniques for killing the flesh. Eight means for spiritual growth. Seven principles for redeeming the time. It all seemed a bit too complicated. When I looked at Jesus, I didn't see him teaching the disciples with an endless set of lists. So I started to ask myself, what are the core principles of the Christian life? Is there a set of essential foundational concepts that can be used as a grid or framework to interpret the rest? And if so, what are they? I needed it simple. I just couldn't juggle a series of hundreds of apparently disconnected principles at once. I needed an anchor to tie them to, something that I could go back to over and over again as a reference point, so that even if I forgot all the other principles that were coming in, I still had a starting point to work with, to guide me, and to measure my growth in Christ against. Well, as I was looking for that anchor, it was then that I came across today's passage and realized, Eureka, I've found it. So let me just say up front, I really can't underestimate how formative today's passage has been in my Christian life personally. And I hope that it can be the same for you. If you're overwhelmed by all the noise in the church, all the voices telling you, if you're going to follow Christ, then you need to do these five things, either in sermons or in books or in blogs on Facebook, then my hope is that this very basic instruction from Christ can be enough to cut through all of that And put the Christian life into a very simple framework for you that is at once very easy to understand and yet very, very hard to master. It's not hard to understand what Jesus says here. But I have to tell you, it is very hard to do. You will spend your entire life trying to work this one single principle out. I'm entitled today's message, The Greatest Commandment, because that's what we see Jesus explain here. He discusses the greatest commandment, the one that is the head of all the others. This is the headwaters from which all other commands in Scripture flow. So if you wonder, what does it mean to obey God? What does it look like to be Christ-like? What is the essence of righteousness? You should always go back here to what Jesus says in Matthew 22, 34-40. This commandment, the greatest commandment, it is the pole that will keep the compass of your sanctification always aimed towards heaven. As long as you keep going back to this core main concept, you cannot but remain on course. So let's see what Jesus has to say here. Once again, the passage is Matthew 22, 34-40. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles and let's read what Jesus has to say together. For the past several weeks, we've been reading about this series of questions that the religious leaders are tossing at Jesus in the temple as they try to publicly discredit His ministry on the Tuesday before His crucifixion. It is still Tuesday of Passion Week. The challenges are still coming. Uh, Jesus has first defeated the challenge of the religious leaders as they questioned him about the source of his authority. He then defeated a coalition made up of the Pharisees and Herodians after that as they asked him about whether or not it was appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees were the next to challenge him, this time over the matter of the resurrection. Today the question comes from a single scribe. This one man, a Pharisee, comes to test Jesus. And Matthew writes this, Matthew 22, 34-40. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what is the great commandment of the Christian faith? What is the one principle upon which hang all the others? It is simply this, love. It is love. We see this spelled out in verses 37 to 40 in particular. Uh, Jesus is approached by this scribe in verse 35. The text, of course, calls him a lawyer. But that's not a lawyer in the way that you or I think of it. A lawyer in this time was someone who was particularly skilled in handling the Mosaic Law. Mark actually calls this man a scribe. point is, this is a man who knows the Torah. He comes to Jesus asking this question about the law. And if there's anyone that's going to have an educated opinion on the matter in question, it's this man. It's him. The law is his area of expertise. It's his forte. He comes to Jesus with this question, and he comes to test Jesus. But it doesn't appear that he comes with the same motives that the other religious leaders had when they challenged Jesus. The word for test here is peirazzo, and it means to test or to try, but it's actually the same word that's used for temptation. It's the idea of testing with the intent to fail. This man wants to see if Jesus will stumble But I don't think it seems as if he's necessarily doing this because he's set against Jesus. Matthew, of course, points out in verse 34 that the Pharisees are gathered together after Jesus' powerful response to the Sadducees. And I think we automatically assume that they're gathered together trying to regroup and launch another assault against Jesus. However, I don't think a close reading of the Gospels actually gives us that picture. You see, Jesus' answer to the Sadducees actually resolved a dilemma that the Pharisees themselves had wrestled with in their disputes with the Sadducees. He had proven a point that they themselves had been trying very hard to prove. Luke even says that after Jesus gave this answer, some of the scribes said to Jesus, Teacher, you have spoken well. Mark says that this scribe, in our passage, then walks up, quote, when he, when he quote, uh, heard them disputing with one another without really designating who the them is there. Well, if Matthew is saying is that it's, it's the Pharisees who have gathered together after this silencing of the Sadducees, then I have to think that it's the Pharisees who are disputing with one another. In other words, I tend to think that what has happened here is that Jesus has so skillfully answered this challenge brought by the Sadducees that there's a dispute breaking out among the Pharisees themselves about how they should react to Jesus. Like after this answer to the Sadducees, some are starting to maybe consider coming to the other side. And that shouldn't actually entirely surprise us. After all, we know that Nicodemus uh, was a Pharisee. Uh, Nicodemus, you recall, was the man that came to Jesus in John 3 to ask him how to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, just a few days after this whole dispute that takes place here, he would actually visit Jesus' tomb immediately after his crucifixion while the other disciples were hiding to anoint his body with uh, myrrh and aloe. Obviously, he is here in Jerusalem and he is 
either already come to faith in Jesus, or perhaps he's even doing so here in the temple as he's watching Jesus answer these disputes. Either way, by Friday, he believes. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We also know from Acts 15 that the whole collection of of Pharisees, the whole collection of them had actually come to faith in Jesus by the time we get to the Jerusalem Council. So as villainous as we like to make the Pharisees out to be much of the time, understand that not all of them were bad. Some of them were, obviously. But there were also some who were apparently sensitive to the truth. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus had handled himself so well that some of these types of Pharisees are actually starting to consider switching sides. They're considering embracing Jesus. They're disputing about him. Well, this lawyer, apparently a very well-respected man, he walks up in the midst of this dispute, according to Mark, and he hears that Jesus had answered these earlier challenges well. Like he walks into the middle of these challenges, this dispute that's taking place among the Pharisees, and he asks the Pharisees, hey, what's going on here? And someone brings him up to speed and tells him what Jesus did. And realizing that Jesus gave good answers, this lawyer comes up with this question to test him. Now, can you see what's happening here? The Pharisees are having this dispute about Jesus when this expert in the law walks up, and after the rest fill him in, he decides that he's going to try to take a crack at it. He's going to try to resolve this dispute among the Pharisees on his own with a question of his own making. This is significant. This man comes up to test Jesus, yes, but not to trap him, per se. In other words, he's not coming for the purpose of discrediting Jesus. That was the goal of the other challenges, to publicly discredit Jesus. Not this time, though. This man is coming genuinely, sincerely, with a question to sort Jesus out. He's testing Jesus. He's baiting him because he wants to see if Jesus will fail. But not so that Jesus will fail. He's doing this to see if Jesus will fail. He wants to settle this debate. And so he devises this question that he thinks will sift out whether Jesus is real or a fraud. I think this is backed up, by the way, uh, by Luke 20, verse 40, which says that after the answer to the Sadducees, the religious leaders didn't uh, dare to ask Jesus another question. Luke says after, that, after Jesus answered that dilemma, No one else dared to ask him a question. Well, obviously, the scribe comes up right after that and asks this question. So what's Luke saying there? I think Luke's saying that there weren't any other questions after the the Pharisees that were meant to challenge Jesus. Because as far as Luke is concerned, the challenge is stopped then. This next question from the scribe doesn't fall into the same category. In fact, in Mark, the scribe even praises Jesus for his answer. And Jesus ends by telling the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So I think we can see that this man is not trying to discredit Jesus. He's trying to test him in the truest sense of the word. He is trying to honestly discern the quality of Jesus' character and teaching. That's why Jesus commends the man at the end of the encounter. He is receptive to what Jesus has to say. So this lawyer comes to test Jesus. And naturally, he comes with a question about the law. Again, that's this man's wheelhouse. He's not asking Jesus to solve something that he hasn't solved yet. He actually knows the answer to the question. He wants to check to see if Jesus knows the answer as well. After all, if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, if He is indeed going to establish justice and righteousness on the earth, as the prophets claimed, 
If the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord rests upon him, if he shall indeed judge not by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but if he will with righteousness judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, as Isaiah predicted, then surely he should be able to handle the matters related to the law at least as competently as this lawyer can. Right? Again, can you see what's happening here? Jesus' messianic credentials are under examination. And so this lawyer comes up with this question about the law to see if Jesus is qualified to judge. If I could put it this way, this lawyer decides to submit Jesus to a bar examination. And he pulls no punches in doing so. He goes right after the heart of the matter. He says to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to summarize the law for me. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? That's what this question is really saying. It's saying, tell me what is at the very heart of the law? There's really no better question that a lawyer can ask in this scenario than this one. I mean, on one hand, it is the most basic question that a person could ask, right? This is not a question wrapped up in the nuance of legal technicalities or loopholes. It is very straightforward. What is the essence of of the law. Give me a general sense of what the law stands for. That's a very basic question. And yet it's also very profound because it requires that Jesus know not just the regulations of the law, but the sense of them. It demands that Jesus demonstrate proficiency in the law, understanding of the law, the type of understanding that goes beyond the specific regulations and serves to govern the exceptions in the hard cases as well. I mean, you can understand what I'm getting at, right? There's a difference between saying to someone, recite the Ten Commandments for me, and then saying, now explain them to me. A five-year-old can recite the Ten Commandments. But not everyone can tell you what they mean. Sadly, there are seminary graduates who would fail that question. This man comes to Jesus and he doesn't come with some silly technicality about whether or not it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar or something like that. He says, no, show me the heart of the law. If you are the supreme judge, then tell me what is the summary of the law. Give it to me in a sentence. Bullet point it for me. Again, this is brilliant. After all, to put it in the words of Albert Einstein, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. That's how this lawyer is coming at Jesus. He's saying, explain the law to me like I'm six. Because more than anything else, this is going to demonstrate Jesus' proficiency with the law. In other words, this guy, I tell you, he is a good lawyer. He knows what he's doing. Very smart. So all that being said, I want you to pause now and consider the significance of this question. This man is asking Jesus to summarize the law, to streamline it down into a single command, the greatest command. I mean, do you know what this means? Do you realize the magnitude of this question? What this lawyer is asking for is a principle from which you can derive all the other commands in the law. You know, uh, by the Pharisees' count, there were 613 commandments stated in the Torah. Try to wrap your head around that for a minute. 613 commands in the Torah. 
That's a lot of commands to try to keep straight. And not only that, but when you have that many commands, then sometimes it's inevitable that some of those commands are going to conflict. There's going to be one situation or another where in order to keep one command, you either have to violate or neglect another. What do you do then? Which commands take priority? The Pharisees debated issues like this. What this guy is asking for is the one supreme command that governs the other 612, so that if someone were to try to explain these commands, they could go back here. Or if there is a conflict between this command and any other, then this is the one that would win the day every single time, since it is the father of all other commandments. This is huge. This means that Jesus' answer to this question really simplifies the Christian life. With this answer, Jesus takes all of God's teaching and His commands and distills them down into a single principle. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome to to be able to know that, see that, this one single principle? He distills it all down. I mean, if you ever get overwhelmed at the apparent complexity of the Christian life, all the do's and don'ts that it feels like you have to manage, then this passage is for you. Jesus makes the target very, very simple. So what does he say? He says, verses 37 to 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus states his answer in two parts, though they really derive from the same principle. First, he answers the lawyer's question by quoting a passage of Scripture known as the Shema. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. And the title Shema comes from the first word in the passage, Shema, which means hear. The Shema reads like this, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now even Jesus, even before Jesus uttered this statement, the Shema was considered one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. In fact, every faithful Jew was expected to recite the Shema to themselves twice a day, once in the morning and then once again in the evening. So the fact that Jesus answers this way with the Shema wouldn't have come with too much of a surprise. This isn't really groundbreaking or anything like that. Any normal Israelite could have seen how Jesus would arrive at this answer. There's precedent for it. So that's the first part of Jesus' answer. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Essentially, worship. Worship is the great commandment of the law. God desires worship. You've heard me say that the chief purpose of the church is worship, that we've all been called out of the world in order to worship God. Well, this is in large part where I'm getting it from. What does God demand from His people? Well, first and foremost, it's worship. What is sin? First and foremost, it is a lack of worship. Or it is a worship of idols. This is why the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry directly. Worship is at the heart of the law. So if Jesus died to redeem us from sin, what did He do that for? Like, what does He aim to have us do in response to our redemption? What are we going to do in heaven forever and ever? The answer is worship. 
Titus 2, 14. Jesus, quote, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He died for our holiness. He died for our righteousness. And how does He define that? What does that obedience look like? What are those good works that we are supposed to be zealous for? Well, He he defines it for us here. First and foremost, it means worship. He saves us so that we might love God, enjoy God, delight in God. That's the great and first commandment, Jesus says, to love God. And then he takes it a step further and he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19, 18. That quotation is a little bit more obscure than Deuteronomy 6. That wasn't a passage that an Israelite would recite daily like they would the Shema. Even still, Jesus' answer would be easy enough to prove. After all, once you get through the first four of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods, make no graven images, do not take the Lord's name in vain, uh, keep the Sabbath. After that, all the commandments are focused on people. Honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. Covet. Uh, those are all commands that have to do with treating other people with honor and respect. So if the Ten Commandments are really the foundation of the Torah, if they are the core document upon which all the other laws and commands are formed, and they are, then you see where Jesus is getting this from. The Ten Commandments can really be broken down into two summary parts. Love God and love your neighbor. Of course, the lawyer didn't ask for two points. He only asked for one. But I would have you note that Jesus states that the second commandment, love your neighbor, is like the first, love God. And once again, you can see why Jesus would say this. After all, why is murder a sin? Right? Thou shalt not murder. Why is that a sin? Genesis 9 tells us when it says, whoever sheds man's, uh, the, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The idea is that because human beings are made in the image of God, they are so intertwined with him that to attack another person is to make an assault on God himself. This is why James says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. For, he explains in James 3.9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. There's an inconsistency there, James says. You can't bless God while cursing people. Because people are made in the image of God. Likewise, John says in 1 John 4.20-21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the same idea. People are made in the image of God. So you can't say, wow, you know, I love God. I love Jesus. And then turn around and despise the very people who are made in God's image and for whom Jesus died. So Jesus gives his answer in two points, but it's really only one point. The core principle is love God. But what Jesus is doing is he's explaining that this love is not absent of a love for other people. It's not love God absent of a love for other people. Rather, it's going to find its chief expression in its love for others. It's like he said earlier in Matthew and on more than one occasion, quoting Hosea 6.6, God demands compassion. And not sacrifice. Now, God demands sacrifice, of course. That's part of loving God. Worship. 
However, the chief expression of worship is not found in sacrifice, but in love for others. So much so that if you have to pick one over the other, you pick compassion rather than sacrifice. So say, for instance, you can either observe the Sabbath or heal a man with a withered hand, right? Then you heal the man with a withered hand. And that's not because love for your neighbor should supersede your love for God. Rather, it's because love for your neighbor should be the chief expression of your love for God. In other words, Jesus isn't exactly giving two separate principles here. He's qualifying the first principle by the second. The greatest commandment is to love God, but within that framework, the chief expression of that love is to be found in love for your neighbor, not hollow sacrifice. Basically, he's answering the lawyer's question thoroughly so that there's no confusion. Yes, God demands compassion over sacrifice. And Jesus has stated that point several times. But this is not because love for people supersedes one's love for God. Rather, the command is to love God first. And what that looks like, first and foremost, is love for one's neighbor. On this principle, Jesus says, on these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. As far as it relates to God's expectations of man, the entire Old Testament he says, can really be summed up in these two points. So, for instance, what was Adam and Eve's sin? They failed to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. Why did God flood the earth in the times of Noah? The people failed to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, which, of course, then found expression in their failure to love one another. What was God commanding Israel to do when He called them to be a kingdom of priests of the earth? He was commanding them to love God and to love their neighbors as, as themselves. What, uh, what did they need to do for God to dwell among them, to bless them? Well, they needed to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Why then did God send them into exile? Easy. Again, they failed to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. And you flip through the prophets and they all confirm this. Again, God's interactions with Israel, what He desired of them, what He expected of them, can largely be summed up in these two points. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's Jesus' summary of the law. This, He says, is the greatest commandment. And while I don't want to spend any more time than I already have explaining why He came to this conclusion or trying to defend this position, I would just like to point out that although Matthew doesn't touch on this point, the lawyer agrees with Jesus. In Mark 12, 32-33, this lawyer responds to Jesus' answer saying, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one, and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to one love's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. According to this lawyer, Jesus is absolutely right. He passes the bar exam with flying colors. So there's not really any dispute here. Both the legal expert and Jesus agree the greatest commandment is love. And I think once we arrive at this conclusion, we can begin to see just how helpful this concept is. Again, this principle serves as the lens through which we should read and understand all of God's commands. It brings the meaning and the function of God's commands into focus. And what this does is answer several key uh, questions for us as it relates to our sanctification. For example, 
This principle tells us why God commands the things that He commands. Why, for instance, does God command Israel to keep the Sabbath? Just take that as an example. It has to tie back to one of these two principles. And once we realize that the purpose of Sabbath is to commemorate God's creation of the earth, then we can understand that it relates primarily to the first principle, love for God. Now, when you study the Sabbath laws, and you can see that part of this has to do with with love for one's neighbor as well. After all, part of the Sabbath laws included the concept of a sabbatical year. And during the sabbatical year, the land itself was supposed to be given rest. It's not to be plowed or sown or harvested. And during the Sabbath year, the law states, the poor are allowed to come and eat whatever grows up from the land on its own. So love for one's neighbor, love for the creation even, is expressed in the Sabbath laws. But primarily, it is given as an expression of the first principle, love God. Then you stop and you ask yourself, so in what way does Sabbath fulfill this principle? Is there something about Sabbath that is inherently pleasing to God? Is it an act of worship in and of itself? Or does the Sabbath rather cultivate a love for God? Well, when you observe that the Sabbath law commemorates God's creative function, That is, once you realize that the purpose of the law is primarily to remind Israel that they worship the God who made heavens and the earth, not Baal, not some regional God, but the one who made the heavens and the earth, then you realize, as Jesus himself states, man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. The law is given not because Sabbath is inherently pleasing to God, but because it cultivates a love for God. It's there as an expression of worship in part, sure. After all, the one who refuses to work on the Sabbath or who refuses to sow their land in the sabbatical year, they express their faith in the fact that God will provide. Sabbath is worship in that sense. But primarily, Sabbath cultivates worship. So that being said, why does the law mandate death for the one who profanes Sabbath? Again, let's keep walking through an understanding of this principle, this idea of love God, love your neighbor, that's the core of everything. Well, if the Sabbath cultivates a love for God, one that will cause a person to draw near to God and experience His blessing, then doesn't it make sense that the reason why God would command something like that originally in His law was because of the second principle, love for one's neighbor? Again, you look at the law and God explained that He will bless those who love Him and He will discipline those who do not. Well, if that's the case, then it is loving to command the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath in order to cultivate love and then warn them against the dangers of forsaking this institution by punishing those who refuse to observe it. I mean, can you see how this works, these two principles? Love for God and love for one's neighbor, how they shade our interpretation of these various Sabbath commands, how they even explain them? Of course, once you understand why God does these things, this then helps you understand how to apply these commands in seemingly difficult situations. That's another benefit to these two principles. They help show us what to do when there isn't a specific command that applies or when there are two commands that appear to contradict. Staying with the Sabbath example. According to the Old Testament, no work is to be performed on the Sabbath. But suppose you're an Old Testament Jew and your neighbor falls sick on Friday. And so when Saturday rolls around, they have no food. 
They were too sick to prepare anything the day before, so Saturday comes around, and they're still sick, and they have nothing to eat. Is it okay to make them something to eat? Even if it requires doing so on Sabbath? I mean, we're supposed to love God, right? But we're also supposed to love our neighbor. So what do we do? Again, Jesus provides the answer through this interpretive grid. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The purpose of Sabbath is to cultivate uh, love for God. It is not inherently righteous in and of itself. Therefore, as Jesus stated in Matthew 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There's no inconsistency between observing Sabbath and loving your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to fulfill, actually, the intent of Sabbath. So yes, you go ahead and make something and give them something to eat. To love one's neighbor under these circumstances is to even demonstrate the kind of fruit that Sabbath-keeping is meant to produce. After all, the one who loves their neighbor under these circumstances, number one, demonstrates trust in God, right? As they freely sacrifice their own goods for the benefit of someone else. And then number two, they express their love for God by loving the man or woman made in His image. Sabbath is designed to produce that kind of worship. So to love in this way doesn't break the Sabbath, it honors the Sabbath. And we could go on with other types of laws if we had time. I'm not bringing Sabbath up because I'm trying to advocate for one, uh, advocate that as one particularly valuable command, or even because I think that command is still in effect today in the same way it was in the Old Testament. I only bring it up as a clear example of how to apply these twin principles of the law. If we had time, we could do the same thing with virtually all of the 613 commands that we find in the Torah. This is just one example. So this principle is helpful in that way. It helps us understand God's law, how to apply it, how to live it out, why it's there. And there are some other ways that this concept is helpful as well. For example, this concept means that if we want to know what love looks like, either love for God or love for my neighbor, where do I look? I look to God's commands. They explain love for me. I want to be clear on this. Jesus is not saying, he is not saying that love is a principle that supersedes or replaces God's law. You have some Christians who try to take that position. They'll say, the greatest commandment is love. We just need to love other people. And then they'll go out and try to do that without looking to the law for instruction on what that means. And that's not how this works. Jesus is not saying that love abolishes God's commands. He's saying that God's commands are built on the principle of love. So if you want to know what it means to love your neighbor, guess where you look? You don't start with your own fallen understanding of love. You don't start in your own sin-diseased mind and try to work your way out. No, you start with God's commands and you let them inform you about what love looks like from a divine perspective. From the perspective of perfect righteousness. This is what God's commands do according to Jesus. They articulate love. So do you say that you love God? Well, how do you know? How do you know that you love God? That's an important question for salvation as it is for sanctification. Obedience clearly is expressed in worship. God demands that we love Him with all our heart and soul and mind. Jesus states as much with His first and greatest commandment. But how do we know that we actually love God? 
And that we're not just deceiving ourselves. After all, Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We're all capable of self-deception. So how do we know that we love God? How do we know that we're actually growing in our faith and not just treading water? Is it by the amount of doctrine that we're able to articulate? Or is it by the amount of religious acts that we, deserve, that we observe? No, it's by our love for our neighbors. If we love God, then we will love our neighbor. 1 John 4, 7-8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 20-21, I read it earlier, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Folks, it's really just that simple. I don't care what you know. If you're not growing in your love for others, then you're not growing as a Christian. Like it says in James 2, faith without works. And faith without love, really. Because that's the setting of that statement from James. James is addressing the one who says to his impoverished brother, go in peace, be warmed and filled. He says that the one who does this while reciting the Shema, actually, claiming God is one, he says they are no better than the demons. Their faith is dead. So I'll say it again. If you are not growing in love, then you are not growing as a Christian. I don't care how much you say you love God. If it's not expressed in action toward your neighbor, then it's mere lip service. It's naked hypocrisy. And how do you know that you love your neighbor? Again, you look to God's commands. Do you love your spouse? Well, not if you're harboring lust for another in your heart. I don't care what you say. Your love is still very much imperfect until you see that sin eliminated because the Scripture clearly condemns lust. Lust is not consistent with love. So again, you may love in part, but not wholly, so long as, love is there, as lust is there. Do you love your unbelieving co-worker? Or do you love your boss? Not if you're cursing him or her under your breath or in your heart behind their back. Again, I don't care what you say about respecting your employer or your co-workers. If in your heart you're still harboring sinful anger, then your love is imperfect. You fall short. Because God's commands condemn that kind of attitude. It is inconsistent with love. You have to measure love by this standard. You have to measure it by the measure of God's commands. And this will tell you if you're growing in righteousness. And if you lift your life up against this standard and then upon closer examination discover that you do not love your neighbor, guess what this principle reveals as well? It reveals that you do not love God. It explains why you do not love your neighbor. You do not love your neighbor because you do not love God because love for God is naturally expressed in love for your neighbor. In other words, your lust problem, your anger problem, your greed problem, those aren't just horizontal issues. They're vertical ones as well. They're vertical ones primarily, actually. 
What they're revealing is that you have an idol. You have an object of worship that you love more than God, that you perhaps trust in even more than God, that you're refusing to put away. James 4, 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you don't love, this is your problem. You don't love because you don't have. There's an idol that you want, and you'll seek it at the expense of others, at the expense of your relationship with God even, until you get it. And this is where I think that this concept, this core foundational understanding of the law, it shifts from helpful to discouraging. You see, this concept not only serves as a helpful guide for understanding righteousness, but in so doing, it exposes our unrighteousness. Think about what Jesus is saying here. What is the greatest commandment? That's not greatest in the sense of most advanced, as if this commandment is practiced only by the most mature Christians. No, this is greatest in the sense of foundational. This is the most important command, the one upon which all the others depend. This is the greatest in that sense, in the the sense of most basic. What is that command? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Now just think about what Jesus is saying there. First, Jesus is saying that the greatest commandment is internal in nature. What does God demand? He demands love. And where is that love rooted? It's rooted in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. It's internal. Obedience is first and foremost internal. God wants the heart. And not only does He want the heart, but He wants all of it. All of it. That's the second thing to observe. This obedience is not only internal, it's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. God doesn't just demand that we love Him some of the time or with a portion of our being. No, He wants us to love Him all of the time, with all of our being. Every part of our being is directed to be directed towards the love of God at full strength. And anything short of those two conditions is disobedience to the most basic of commandments. Anything short of that all-encompassing love is sin. That's crushing That's crushing. God demands perfect love. And perfect love as expressed in our love for others. In short, He demands that I not just love Him perfectly, but that I love others perfectly as well. And that's not just a a suggestion. It's not just a recommendation. It's a command. It's a requirement, an obligation. Now ask yourself, when do I love like this? I mean, have you ever gotten impatient with anyone, maybe in the past week? Well, if so, you've fallen short of perfect love. Did you see an opportunity to serve someone this week, but you didn't do it because it was going to require too much time or too much energy, because you have had to sacrifice too much to do it? If so, you've fallen short of perfect love. You failed to love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe did you sacrifice, but you only did it begrudgingly? And without any thought of your love for God or for His glory. 
Well, guess what? Even under those circumstances, you didn't love with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And according to the law, you're guilty enough to be consigned to eternal punishment in hell. This is devastating, isn't it? I mean, who does this, right? Who can live up to this? What Jesus is demanding here is utterly impossible. It's a good goal to aim for, no doubt, but it's impossible for any of us sinners to achieve. So really, this principle should be a cause for despair because what this command states is that we're all condemned. And it's not even close. I mean, if all God demanded was my actions, I might be able to manage that for a pretty extended period of time. But to love Him with all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my soul, with all of my strength, as it says in Mark 12, you know, I don't know that I've ever done that a single moment in my life. And I'm saying that as a Christian. Don't get me wrong, I love God, and there are moments where that love is very strong. But to say that I love Him with every ounce of my being, I don't know that I can ever say that I've loved Him like that. Or or if I have, it's not been often. It isn't common, to say the least. So while this command is helpful in understanding righteousness, it really only condemns me. It tells me what to aim for. It's helpful in that sense, but it doesn't help me to achieve it. Instead, it only condemns me. So this passage can, it can, be a cause for despair. And yet I would like to point out that there's hope embedded in this command at the same time as well. You see, there's a reason why God demands love. Perfect love. And you know what that reason is? It's because this is the way God is. God demands this perfect love because He loves like this and we're made in His image. You don't need to look any further than this passage to see this. Again, how is love for God chiefly expressed? It's expressed through love for the men and women made in His image. God says, you want to worship me? This is how. Love your neighbor. God says, the way you worship me is by loving others. So God demands love because this is what He delights in. He loves the creation that He's made. That's why He commands us to love one another as an expression of worship to Him. Now, to be clear, I don't think this command isn't absent of God's love for himself. No, I'd say the reason why God demands this kind of worship for one another is because he loves himself, is because we are made in his image. God loves himself, he delights in himself, and because this is so, the thing that he desires for us is to love one another. This means that God himself, though, delights in us. God himself loves us. And with all his heart, and with all his soul, all his mind. And of course, what the scripture goes on to tell us is that because God loves with this perfect kind of love, because he loves even his own glory with this perfect love, then the way he responded to our shortcomings, to our sin, our inability to fulfill this command is not by merely condemning us for our sin. No, instead, He sent His Son into the world to become one of us and redeem us. And this Son, as He took on human flesh and became one of us, He looked upon us as His brothers, as His neighbor. And this Son, then, in an expression of His love for God the Father, 
loved us to the very end by laying down His life as a ransom for our sins. He loved us with a perfect love. Not because we were lovable. Not because we've kept this basic commandment. But so that God might be be glorified in us through our redemption. So yes, this passage condemns. But it also gives us a reason to have hope. Do we love imperfectly? Yes, absolutely. But will God let us go? Most certainly not. His is a perfect love. He himself loves us with the exact same kind of perfect love that he demands from us. It's with this last thought in mind, this realization that God loves us this way. I want to come back again next week and explore how we grow to love with the kind of love that Jesus outlines here. Of course, Jesus, Jesus doesn't touch on that here. He doesn't explain how to love this way. He just answers the lawyer's question and says the greatest commandment is love, and he leaves it at that. But I don't think it's fair to just lay this out there and say, you know guys, God demands that you love Him perfectly from the heart, and this finds expression in love for other people. So if you don't love other people, it means you don't love God, and then just leave it like that for you to kind of roast in your sin right? and condemnation. Now, I can't just say the greatest commandment is love. That's what you're supposed to aim for in the Christian life. So if you're not loving, you're not growing. And then go, well, and now on to the next point. Right? Can't do that. I can't give you the demand without in some way showing you how to fulfill it, how to pursue it, how to nurture it from the heart. So now that we have this all laid out, I want to come back next week and in kind of a brief excursus, I want to try to explain how you can grow in this love that God demands. Now, as you can imagine, that's a pretty broad subject. Uh, We're not going to have time to cover this issue comprehensively next week, but I want to at least zero in on a couple of key concepts, the most important of which comes from this last point, which is the love of God for us. So I'd invite you to come back for part two of this message next week, and we'll explore what the Bible says about how to grow in the love of God. And in the meantime, let's close in prayer.